Welcome to Verity. I'm your host, Felicia Masonheimer, an author, speaker, and Bible teacher. This podcast will help you embrace the history and depth of the Christian faith, ask questions, seek answers, and devote yourself to becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. You don't have to settle for watered-down Christian teaching. And if you're ready to go deeper, God is just as ready to take you there. This is Verity, where every woman is a theologian. All right, who is ready to get super nitty-gritty into the details of canonization? Because we're going to be talking a lot about authorship, some theories about the dates and the compilation and the sources behind the Pentateuch or the Torah, and it's going to be very detailed. So I just want to prepare you. If you're a note taker, this would be a great note taking episode because I have a lot of information to share with you. Now, of course, every theory that we talk about has sub theories and variations and all of those things are able to become even more complicated the further along we go. So I am going to stick with a very high level view so that we can just kind of get the big picture of the Pentateuch. So before we get into the details, we're going to talk a little bit about canonization of the Old Testament as a whole and just how to understand the nature of the Old Testament. So a little review, the Old Testament was written over the course of about 1100 years It had around 40 different authors, and the order of the Old Testament that we have today is not the same as the Jewish Old Testament that even Jesus would have had. We talked about in last week's episode how Jesus had a three-part Old Testament that began in Genesis and ended in Chronicles. And so today we have an Old Testament that is based off the Septuagint, or the Greek Old Testament, and the Latin Vulgate, which was translated from the Septuagint. And the order in these books was different than the original Hebrew version. Not different in what books were contained in the Old Testament, but simply different in their order and how they were combined. So in the Hebrew Old Testament, you might have seen before this abbreviation, it's T-A-N-A-K, Tanakh, And basically what it is, is it's an abbreviation for the three names for the three different scrolls. So you have Torah, which is the first five books. The Torah is also called Pentateuch, the first person to refer to the Torah as the Pentateuch, which means five books, was the church father origin. So that term came from him. It wasn't used by the Jews, but it is a helpful way of remembering that there's five books in the Torah. So Torah is the first one of the three, then Nebim, which would be the prophets, and then the Ketubim, which is the writings. And so the abbreviation for this looks like Tanakh. T-A-N-A-K. Now, the difference in this Old Testament Jewish version, there's a couple differences, but one of the big ones is it had less books than the Old Testament we have now. And you might freak out a little and be like, where did they go? Did we make them up? No, they were just compiled differently. So for instance, the minor prophets were all one scroll. That's a lot of books in one scroll. So for instance, 
the prophets had the former prophets, which would be Joshua, Samuel, Judges, and Kings, and then the latter prophets, which was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all of the minor prophets in one scroll. So you can see how the Jewish Old Testament would have looked different for Jesus than it does for us now, while still containing all of the same information that we are working from today. Jesus had the same Old Testament that we have. He also would have had access to the apocryphal books, so like the book of Enoch, Maccabees, things like that, even though the apocryphal books were not deemed canon by the Jews. They were considered historical, but they were not considered inspired works and authoritative for the faith. So we'll get more to the apocrypha later on, but hopefully this gives you kind of a foundation as we are working forward to talk specifically about the Torah, its authorship, and some questions surrounding its canonization. Okay, Torah. Genesis through Deuteronomy. And as we said, this is called the Pentateuch in Greek. And this is a vital piece of scripture, not just to the Jews, but also for Christians. As we look at how the canon of scripture was compiled, we need to consider where these first five books originated, who authored them, and what may have been their consolidation process. So there's a lot of theories about this among theologians and academic scholars of the Bible. And I could not cover all of the theories if I tried. It would take forever. So we're going to deal with one of the most popular theories in the last 200 years, which is called the JEDP theory. Before I get to that, though, I want to kind of define a few things. First, one of the things that's kind of an unspoken assumption in the church is that Moses authored the Pentateuch. He authored Torah. And one of the issues with this is we tend to think that only people who truly care about scripture would believe that Moses authored the Torah, so the conservative view and if you're liberal, then you believe he didn't. And I want to debunk this right out of the gate because there's actually some very conservative scholars who don't think that Moses authored Torah because of how Torah is written and some of the ways it references the past. So I just want to first make sure that as I talk about the possibility that Moses didn't write Torah, you understand that there are multiple perspectives on this within conservative Orthodox theology, and that this doesn't undermine the authority of it or say that Moses wasn't real or a literal person or that he didn't write things down because we know in Torah he did write certain things down because it says that God told him to write them but that we are looking at this text critically and letting it speak for itself. The other thing you need to be aware of is that anonymous authors were very common at this stage of ancient Middle Eastern literature. It was very common to not know who the author would have been, and that doesn't necessarily undermine the authority of this scripture and the consistency of the narrative as we will see moving forward. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the JEDP theory. So this was founded by Julius Wellhausen, and it's held by many scholars and university theologians who tend toward a liberal interpretation of scripture. 
So JEDP is an abbreviation for four supposed texts, which, when compiled over time, eventually became the Torah. These texts all had different origins and were supposedly compiled by Ezra as a canon after the Babylonian exile. So J stands for Jawik or Yawik, and that's Y-A-H-W-I-C. The J is because Wellhausen was German, so that it would be Yawik, but it's a J. E is for Elohik, so like Elohim, it's Elohik. D is Deuteronomic, and P is Priestly. Each of these sources, so each letter stands for a supposed source text that was basically forming the Torah. Each of these sources is progressively more recent. So the Yahweh text would have been the oldest, then Eloic, Deuteronomic, and Priestly. Scholars believe that the Torah was compiled from four different authors and texts because the language and the use of God's name, so Yahweh versus Elohim, indicates different authorship and even different date of writing. So these source texts are, again, supposedly completely, they're completely hypothetical. None of these texts have been found, okay? (laughs) This is all hypothetical. And much of the conversation around their existence is used to support a non-literal mythological approach to Torah teaching. So basically, this JEDP theory is saying there were four different authors, and we believe that because they use different names for God, and these were all compiled together after the Babylonian exile. So, so many years after Moses, after the Exodus, they're compiled by Ezra and put together and they don't result in an inspired, spiritually authoritative text. They're really just a mythological um, background that Israel took literally is essentially what a lot of these scholars are saying. Now, there's a few things I want to mention about this view. God has many names in scripture, and authors may use specific names to reflect the character of God as expressed in the situation being recorded. We know that God acts in many different ways, and so if he's acting in a certain way, the author may use a name of God that describes him in that context. Conservative scholars argue that different name usage does not necessarily reflect a different time period or author, but simply the author's effort to depict God's character. The priestly source links, in theory, to Ezra and the final canonization of Torah as authoritative. Why does this matter? So, Felicia, why why does this matter at all? Because if Torah was not authoritative until the resettlement of Palestine after the Babylonian captivity, and many scholars say this was just for geopolitical purposes, the Torah was used for political purposes to be authoritative. Then its spiritual implications and its authority can only be a cultural figment. It can't be something that's eternal. It can't have something with, you know, long-term spiritual implications. We can't live by it today because it was all just a political text from random dudes that Ezra compiled to get Israel back as a nation. Torah compilation for spiritual particularly for messianic purposes, can just be written off as the ignorance of ancient minds with the JEDP theory. So I want to read you part of an article 
on the Torah that quotes a couple more conservative scholars who really don't think highly of the Wellhausian theory. One of them, and this is Gleason Archer of Trinity Evangelical, said, it is very doubtful whether the Wellhausen hypothesis is entitled to the status of scientific respectability. There is so much special pleading, circular reasoning, and questionable deductions from unsubstantiated premises that it is absolutely certain its methodology would never stand up in a court of law. That's quite an accusation. And I have to say that I agree. JEDP theory is loved by liberal scholars but again, many of these liberal scholars are coming from the perspective that scripture isn't authoritative, it's not inspired, it's just old, you know, language and documents from mythological believing people. And so if that's your perspective, you're going to do whatever it takes to find a way to undermine scripture, even if it means bending common sense. Another quote by Archer says, when all the data of the Pentateuchal text have been carefully considered and all the evidence, both internal and external, has been fairly weighed, the impression is all but irresistible that mosaic authorship is the one theory that best accords with the surviving historical data. So we'll talk a little bit about that because that's debatable, but it is the counter, one of the counters to this liberal interpretation. I think all of us have been at a women's conference where we were told, you are a beautiful daughter of the Most High King. And it's true, but it's not the whole truth. The beauty of being God's daughter has some backstory and it's left out in a lot of messages preached to women. So if you're tired of hearing the watered down Christian teaching and you're hungry for a deeper spiritual life, I have something for you is my brand new book, Stop Calling Me Beautiful, Finding Soul Deep Strength in a Skin Deep World. Stop Calling Me Beautiful is a book about going deeper with God. I'm going to talk about pursuing the truth of who God is and who we are in relationship to him, how to study scripture, how legalism, shallow theology, and false teaching keep us from living boldly as a woman of the word. I'm so excited to put this book in your hands. You can grab your copy on Amazon, or for more information, head to my website, FeliciaMasonheimer.com, and click the book tab. So let's go back to the evangelical conservative response. Moses is the commonly understood author of Torah, right? And one of the responses when coming up against the liberal theory is that Moses simply received all the information for Genesis through Deuteronomy from God, kind of like Joseph Smith in his golden tablets. They just kind of appeared, but this is not consistent with how the rest of the Bible is written. The Bible is historically rooted. It is historically in a land that exists, that bears history that you can go to, that you can see. It's also rooted in the genealogies of the Bible. It's traceable. And this is a big deal. I know that a lot of people don't like the genealogies. They find them boring and they don't understand their significance. But genealogies are so vital to the historicity of scripture. They not only give us a way to trace the lineage of the different tribes of Israel and for them, their ownership of land 
But they also show us that there was this historical connection and this biological human connection to the story. These were real people. And that's so important for the accuracy of scripture. So for Moses just to get this out of the sky, just sitting there behind a curtain or whatever, does isn't consistent with the rest of scripture, which depended on eyewitness accounts and people close to the situation who were writing near to it, like we talked about last week, early and eyewitness, as early as possible and as eyewitness as possible, talking to people who were there or near to the situation so that you can record it accurately. And this second view that Moses just got the information dumped on him, it doesn't really, really fly. So here's another option. And this takes into account both divine inspiration and history. Torah portrays an incredibly detailed knowledge of Egyptian culture, history, and landscape. This is befitting of Moses' background. It's also laced with genealogical records, like I just mentioned, which give us a map for the authority of the account. And since eyewitnesses are so important to canonicity, it should intrigue us that these family lines show Seth, son of Adam, alive very near to the same time as Noah, and Shem, son of Noah, alive at the same time as Abraham. If Noah possessed family records and preserved them, and Abraham gave everything he had to Isaac, Genesis 25, 5, which may have included records of his own, then we have this way of passing information down that isn't necessarily just oral. And even if it is oral, we have this way of transmitting information that preserves it for generations to come. So one of the things that's interesting when we're talking about Abraham giving everything he had to Isaac in Genesis 25, the word for statutes in Genesis 26, 5, is, it's used in reference to Abraham's obedience, is a word for clay tablets written in stone, indicating that Abraham was recording God's directives for posterity. So now we have Abraham recording things that God said to him that perhaps Moses worked from, whoever the author of Torah was, worked from to compile the Torah. Another thing to take into consideration, the Abrahamic covenant pivots on the transmission of covenantal truths to Abraham's children. So Abraham was supposed to share the covenant and what God said to him with his children and with their children and so on. This information had to be passed down. Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, all who operated with an understanding of who God was and how he worked among men. So during the enslavement of Israel and Egypt, reverence for God is mentioned among the midwives. So Exodus 1.17, and the people actively called upon God. Exodus 3, it was their call upon God for help, which God uses as the basis for his call on Moses' life. So we're moving from Abraham's transmission of this information forward to Moses, who became the first and really the greatest, according to the last chapter of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 34, prophet of Israel. He received and recorded Torah so the people of Israel could live with God among them. Now, some would say he didn't record the entire five books because we do have only a few evidences of where Moses is writing down information. So we know that Moses wrote down 
some facts about the battle with the Amalekites. This is in Exodus 17, 14, because the Lord said to him, write this as a reminder in a book and recite it in the hearing of Joshua about the Amalekites. He also recorded Exodus 20 through 23, where he wrote down all the words of the Lord, says in Exodus 24, 3. We know the Decalogue in Exodus 32 was written by him, Exodus 34, And then there's a couple stops in the wilderness, Numbers 33, and it says Moses wrote down their starting point stage by stage by command of the Lord. And Deuteronomy 31, we know that Moses wrote down a song and taught it to the Israelites. And earlier in Deuteronomy 31, he wrote down the law and gave it to the priests. Now, why, if we know that Moses is writing stuff down, we know he's literate, we know he's writing some things, why not say he just wrote the whole thing? Well, there's a couple things that can make us question that. In a handful of places, and this is according to Torah.com, which I believe is a messianic approach to this topic, it's very fair and balanced. In a handful of places, Pentateuch, references things that show the author is living across the Jordan long after the wilderness period, after they've taken over Israel or Canaan. So one of the things that's mentioned in Genesis is the Canaanites were in the land. Genesis 12, 6, the Canaanites were in the land at that time. So the author is clearly referring to a time when the Canaanites are no longer in the land. But Moses died before that happened, and he never got to go into the land. Another time we see is at the end of the description of Esau's descendants comes an Edomite king list, and it says, this is Genesis 36, 31, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. So the author is speaking in past tense, but with this present knowledge of where Israel's going. Again, Moses wouldn't have been there to write something like this. Exodus 16.35, in reference to manna, ends with this statement, the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a habitable land. So Canaan, they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Again, this is in past tense. Now it could be argued, well, Moses could write it in past tense, but then this would mean that He wrote it right before he died when they got to the border of the land of Canaan. And there's quite a few other issues like this. Another one, and this is kind of intriguing, in Deuteronomy 3.11, King Og of Bashan is mentioned. And it says, in fact, his bed, an iron bed, can still be seen in Rabbah of the Ammonites. So this person is writing suddenly in present tense saying, look, all this time has passed and you can still see this iron bed here. So all of this together, it's not saying that, oh my goodness, we're denying this fundamental truth. Moses wrote the Torah. Truth is, conservative scholars debate this. It's not necessarily true that Moses wrote the Torah. He definitely wrote pieces of the Torah. What does matter, though, is are we still adhering to the authority of Torah? Because this is, this is foundational stuff. This is stuff Jesus was working from. This is stuff Jesus was fulfilling. So it's very vital that we preserve the importance of inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility in regard to these first five books. 
The fact that Moses didn't write it doesn't necessarily undermine its truth. The book of Hebrews is also canon, and we don't know who authored that. So I just want to encourage you if you're like, I always thought Moses wrote the Pentateuch. This is not necessarily something that should shake your faith. It should actually strengthen your faith because what we're doing is we're looking at Torah specifically and allowing it to interpret itself and say, okay, you know what? We do see these textual evidences that perhaps Moses didn't write the entire thing, but we know that he wrote some of it. Okay. So returning back to our discussion of Moses as the one writing it, there are people who do think he wrote it and that David, Ezra, the Pharisees, and Jesus affirmed it. Now, the sources for this are when the Pharisees or Jesus refer to Torah as the law of Moses. But reality is the law was given to Moses. It was given to Moses and he then wrote it down for the people and he spoke it to the people. So we can still call it the law of Moses while also believing that all of Torah wasn't necessarily written down by Moses. And we're not speaking double talk here. There is indication someone else, maybe Joshua, maybe not, completed the final verses of Deuteronomy after Moses' death and then affirmed his teaching as authoritative for the people of Israel. Because as soon as we go into Joshua, we see them affirming these truths as they start the conquest into Canaan. A last important thing that challenges the JEDP theory, and this is according to Dr. Eckhart Otto, is Deuteronomy's role, so the last book of the Pentateuch, the last book of Torah, its role as an exegesis of Leviticus and Exodus. So in Deuteronomy 1.5, Moses explains or expounds on Torah, extrapolating all the previously given laws with new context in the promised land. So this is seen between Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Dr. Otto calls Deuteronomy the legal completion of the Pentateuch. So this is an authoritative, interpreted compilation. And as they're wrapping this up and Moses is about to die, they're about to go into the land. He, he gives them everything that he's told them before in this concise form. And he challenges them. He says, you need to choose. You know, are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? And everything that was taught to them was considered binding and authoritative. Israel treats Moses' work as this authoritative guide for their theocratic existence. We can look at Deuteronomy, we can look at Joshua, and their violation of the law results in the conflict we see in Judges. So though the Torah itself may not have been compiled in the form we know it until Ezra's era, it was functioning as an authoritative rule for Israel. And it was a foundational text for understanding the divine long before Ezra ever existed. Okay, this was a lot of information. You guys are probably like, my head is spinning right now. I don't even know what to think. Hopefully it wasn't too overwhelming. But I want to end this with why this matters. So as Christians, we base our earthly and our eternal lives on the authority of scripture. Knowing where it came from and how it was compiled roots our faith in history. But it is important to note the Christian faith is still faith. It's not blind. It's not without fact or reason, but still it's faith. We Christians believe in something mystical and earthly. 
And as such, there will always be an element of the unreasonable about it. Those who refuse to believe may be subscribing to one of Ravi Zacharias's three kinds of unbelief. Rational, not enough information to convince me. Emotional, my experiences keep me from believing. Or volitional, I choose not to believe. Volitional unbelief can manifest one of the first two ways. And ultimately, no amount of information or experience will convince that person of the realism of Jesus Christ or of the authority of the Bible. Only the Holy Spirit himself can reach the heart of a person who is bent on disbelief. So all of this is meant to give you information and a foundation to understand the Bible that you're reading, to understand that this didn't fall out of the sky that it has been authoritative from the beginning, that it's a foundational text to understanding God. It's how Israel knew who God was, how to relate to him, how to act, how to choose justice and mercy. And so that foundation is going to guide what we see in the historical books and in the prophets and in the writings and then eventually in the New Testament. So it's important for us to have this foundation because the law of God that's outlined here and the atonement laws and Leviticus, all of that is going to be so significant once we get to what Jesus was doing as the fulfillment of the law. I hope this was exciting, you guys, and I can't wait to come back next week as we talk about the canon of Ezra. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Verity. You can connect with fellow listeners by following me on Instagram at Felicia Masonheimer or on our Facebook page by the same name. Also visit FeliciaMasonheimer.com for links to each episode and the show notes. 